we all have a lens by which we perceive everything. And it colors things even before we're aware of what it is we're thinking. We spent two weeks in Ephesians chapter 4, and by way of review, verse 17, say it with me. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the people of the world do in the futility of their thinking. We have a way of thinking that Paul calls futile or empty. And then he says, this is what the cure is. Let's say this together. Be made new in the attitude of your mind. And the word mind there is literally your reasoning. There is a way our mind works that gets in the way of the full transformation that God wants to do. We have to outgrow that. Today, we're going to start talking more on a practical level. But before we do that, I want to lay more of the biblical groundwork for this and talk about how we got this way in the first place. And so that is going to take us to the book of Genesis, chapter 2, and we're going to look at the way things were, how God created us. We're going to make several observations about Adam and Eve out of this verse. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Let's look at the state of affairs between Adam and Eve. And what we see is three things. The first is that they were in a state of innocence. The word is they were unashamed. The things I'm about to describe to you, none of us can fully understand because none of us have ever lived in a world without shame. The second thing we see is authenticity or transparency. I take that from the the term they were naked and unashamed. I got to tell you, it would take an awful lot of authenticity with somebody to see me naked these days. There's one person in my life that I have that level with. I'm sorry, I just gave you guys a picture that is, that's really rough. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for that. Sometimes I should really think through some of these comments before they come out of my mouth. But you see, I have this broken way of thinking that gets in the way. So... They had nothing to hide from each other. They didn't even understand the concept. That's amazing. And then the third thing we see is this incredible intimacy by the phrase, the two will become one flesh. And even though that primarily is speaking to a physical relationship, it also is speaking of this incredible unity. We tend to think of sex as an act that we can separate from human connection. That's why the phrase hookup has become so popular, or, or friends with benefits. But that wasn't God's intent. He's speaking about a level of connection that the sexual union is meant to grow out of. Such a connection with each other, such an authenticity, that they are literally one in essence. It's an amazing emotional state of well-being. But sadly, we see that all of that became something else, and that's chapter 3. 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened They realized they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman. (laughs) The woman you put here. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me. And I ate. As opposed to the incredible innocence and authenticity and intimacy that the human race experienced before the fall, we see a dramatic change. The first thing that we see in this is loss of innocence. The eyes of both of them were opened. It means that they experienced evil. It wasn't that they didn't know right and wrong. They did. It was very simple. Wrong would be eating. Right would be not eating. They understood right and wrong, but when they chose wrong, they experientially came to know evil. So loss of innocence. The second thing we see is shame. They knew that they were naked. Suddenly what was perfectly fine before becomes a real problem. I'm known. I'm seen. It leads to hiding. They try to hide from each other by creating garments, and then they hide from God himself. I heard you coming, and I knew I was naked, so I hid. So instead of innocence and authenticity, there's shame and hiding, and that leads to blaming one of the most powerful tools you and I have in our arsenals to keep from having to look at our deep brokenness is the fine art of blaming. And this is where we learned it. It's exactly what Adam does. Rather than owning what happened, I'm a victim here. She's just really that good at pulling me into her games. And by the way, you're the one that gave her to me. So he blames his wife, with whom he had at one time been one flesh, whatever happened to that. But more than that, if I blame God, 
the woman you gave me, it's her fault, it's your fault. It's not mine. And then the woman passes the buck. The serpent fooled me. I only ate it because I was fooled. We fail to take responsibility for how we contribute to the disasters in our life, to the broken relationships, to the situations that we find ourselves in. I was misled. I was mistaken. I'm not responsible. Blaming. Now, here's what I want you to see. I propose that since the fall, what we observe in Adam and Eve and their response to the chaos that their life became because of their decisions, that very same response is your and my default response to every circumstance in our life. There is a shame in all of us. We know deep down inside us there's a darkness. You might not like to call it that, but it's there. We, we all know that brokenness, that shame. And we all desperately spend our lives trying to hide it from everyone else. We write a narrative of who we want to be, convince ourselves that that's who we are, and present ourselves to each other. We hide. And then when we begin to be discovered, we make it about everybody else. Problem's not me. Problem's you. Problem's God. Problem is the world. See my point? So what if you began to... Think about this futility of thinking that Paul addresses in Ephesians 4 as what all of us have as our default way of reacting and processing everything because of our fallen nature. Are you with me on that? And I want to talk about how this broken, futile way of thinking, of of shame and hiding and blaming that is the voice in our head that's constantly speaking to us in every circumstance, how that shows up in two ways, how it affects our perception of everything, and then secondly, how it affects our action or reaction to things. I'm going to use two different illustrations in order to bring that out. And so the first thing we're going to look at is our perception uh, through this image right here. All of us look through life through a lens. Everything you have ever experienced in life contributes to that lens. Most of us have no idea it's there. We never question it because we're so used to thinking that way. I want to list those experiences in five categories. The first is your personal history. Your childhood, your adolescence, your sexual encounters, your relationship with your parents, with your siblings, your friends, both those who you still have or those that betrayed you and left emotional damage, strangers you have encountered over the years that have left a mark on you in ways that you may remember or may not remember, every success you've had, every failure you have experienced, every pleasure, every loss, every pain and every joy you have experienced. All these things come into how you see everything else. Do you know that there's some of you that hate people? Did you ever meet somebody and you go, man, right away, I don't like that person. Now, is that really possible? (laughs) But yet we've all experienced it. You know why? Because they remind you of somebody else that you didn't like. They talk like them, they look like them, they work for the same company. That's not fair. 
but that's my lens. Some women in here can't look at a man and not convince yourself right away that, that they can't be trusted because you've been wounded by men, so you don't trust any men. And that keeps you from embracing healthy relationships that God intended you to have. Men, some of you, because of pornography or, or other dating experiences you've had, see all women as an object of your sexual needs. You can't look at a woman without looking lower than the eyes. The second area is our broken moral compass. Doctrinally, we call this our sin nature, but think of it as the inability to steer ourselves in a moral direction. So consequently, we make ungodly, rebellious decisions spoken of by Ephesians 4 last week when Paul said we are darkened in our understanding and separated from the life of God. The third area is your belief system, not just your list of Christian doctrines that you believe, but I mean what you believe about everything, about people, about the way things are, about the way things are supposed to be, about God, and even about yourself. We all have a belief system that goes largely unquestioned, but yet we view everything and we hear everything through that belief system. The fourth area is our current circumstances in life. Are we happy? Are we sad? Do we have unmet needs? How are our friendships? Have we been wounded? Do we have those that we feel close to or do we feel isolated? How are our finances? Do we have a sense of purpose or fulfillment? And then the final area is our core fear or wound. The deepest, most influential wound or fear that informs everything about you. There is in all of our lives some event or circumstance that has marked us in such a way that it has become ingrained into our emotional operating chip. For some of us, it's tragic events, uh, being raped, being molested, the loss of someone that we love that we can't get past. For others of us, it's when we became victims of an unfair attack that dramatically altered our relationships and our future, or maybe some combination of those things that informs everything else about us. The person in here that says, I'm not worthy of being loved by someone who values me and finds themselves getting over and over again into relationships where they're used or abused is informed by an idea somewhere that that's what they deserve, and so they, they keep going there. The person that was constantly pushed down by an authority figure that now fights for every point that they want to make and must win every conversation is informed by that brokenness that told them they're always wrong. And so now you have to always be right. In a minute or two, I'm going to share with you my particular core brokenness. At least I'll give you something to legitimately gossip about the pastor about <laughs> before you leave here today. Does that make sense to you? And here's the thing. We don't pay attention to them. 
We just go about seeing things the way we see. And our brain tells us what we should think about those things before you're even consciously contemplating what you have observed or heard. It's already been tainted by all of that. Now, let's move on to our actions. When we act or react to things, how does this brokenness show up? And for that, we're going to use the illustration of an iceberg. There's so much more below the surface than we see. And here's what I want you to think about. You know that phrase, I only had the best of intentions in mind? You know that phrase? It's never true. All of us, even in Christ, have a capacity for sin. We still have a sin nature that's struggling to win. And it's very rare that you or I do anything for just the intentions we're willing to acknowledge. Those are our known intentions, what we might call our best of intentions. And here's just a few that may be the kind of things that drive us. Now, some Christians will say either I'm operating in the spirit or I'm operating in the flesh. I don't believe that dichotomy actually has grounds in Scripture. The fact is we operate out of our whole being, and I have come to learn that even when I'm doing things with the best of intentions, There are other factors at play also that inform how I act. We do what we do out of a mixed set of intentions. Yeah, of course we do things to be kind. We do things to learn the truth or we do them out of love or to be helpful. And yes, of course we do things to please God. And there's nothing wrong with doing something just to enjoy it. We all do things for those good reasons. But there are other things at play. Those are our hidden intentions represented by words like these, our woundedness or our need to fix, our insecurity, our tendency to judge, our pride, our mistrust, our anger, our need to win, our bitterness, our hate, and our guilt. There's a voice in us that says, do this in order to be liked Do this to be right, or to be valued, or to be safe, or to be loved, or accepted, but by all means make sure that whatever you do doesn't leave you discovered, so that the you you want people to see is what's seen. And so we typically act out of both the intentions we're aware of, and the intentions we're not aware of. You know why that's true? Because your mind controls you more than you control your mind. The subconscious creates actions in you that you're the last person to see. So when you say, hey, I had the best of intentions, I believe you. But I'm asking you to look at the other intentions that showed up as well. Now let me tell you a bit of my own story in this. Many of you know that Prior to coming into a pastoral ministry, I traveled as a concert artist and worship leader and had the privilege for almost 10 years of traveling around the United States and Canada and parts of the world, and I was on stage all the time, in front of people all the time. Now, here's the best of intentions. Here's the top of the iceberg. I really wanted to serve God. I really wanted to help people. I felt a deep call into ministry. I love the Lord. And I did a lot of stuff wanting God to be honored. But I now look back and see that the other intentions in me 
were about my core need. You see, as a preacher's kid myself, when I think back to my father expressing through his looks and through his words to me his pride, it was always when he had me on platform with him with the rest of our family. And we were singing, and we were doing the right thing, and we were serving. And my dad bragged about his kids who are all serving the Lord. And it was always about me being in front of people so that my father could show me off. And it became how I found my affirmation, not only from dad, but from everyone else. My relationship with God was impacted by that. I, I, I realize now as I look back, even though I understood grace and I wanted to do things for the right reasons, there was a part of me that was doing everything I did so that my heavenly dad would be proud of me. I had a works-oriented idea of faith. One of my friends reminded me that at the time there was a famous Scott Wesley Brown song uh, that was really beautiful and I wanted to sing it, but I really didn't like one of the lines of the chorus, which was, and now my greatest joy is loving you, talking to God. And I thought, nah, that's trite. So I changed it to, and now my greatest joy is serving you. I couldn't perceive God's pleasure of me without what I was doing. When I came into the first 10 years or so in church ministry, I was the associate pastor at a church, and I had the privilege of doing everything that people were desperate to see done, which meant everybody liked me. I got to do a lot of things I love to do, and in that setting, I never really experienced the dark side because I was serving God, God was doing some wonderful things, and of course, all along, my, my need subconsciously was being met. I didn't even notice it. And on stage, when I was traveling, I could be pretty impressive like everybody else, one concert at a time, one weekend at a time, and so I got lots of affirmation and didn't even pay attention to the fact that that need was being met. And then I became a senior pastor and everything changed. <laughs> I was the person that people looked to when things went wrong, and we had a situation where we let go a staff person when the decision was made. First time in my ministry, first time in my life, I had a group of people that were mad at me. Me? And I went about trying to fix the issue. I think all I need to do is sit down and help them understand the process, take them through it, and uh, they'll understand. They might still be sad, but at least we'll be able to move forward. And so I had numerous of these meetings and thought they went fine, and come to find out later that most of these families were even more mad at me than they were at the beginning. And I, I couldn't understand that. I mean, I, I only had the best of intentions. Why was I in worse trouble with them than I wasn't? Well, here's what happened. When I found myself in that place where I was suddenly not getting without realizing it, that core need met, that part of me that said, be loved, be affirmed, impacted how I went about having these conversations in ways I didn't see, but they saw. Tom's more concerned about 
how we feel about him than about how we feel. That was really hard to come face to face with. And God used a series of relationships that I had at the time, accountability relationships with some very godly men where we had achieved a level of authenticity, talked about our most shameful things with one another, and ministered God's grace. God used that circle of people where there was the ability to really speak the truth in love, to use those circumstances, whether or not the opinion of people was fair or not, whether my actions or the board's actions were right or wrong, that's not my point here. That circumstance presented an opportunity for me to learn something about myself that I had never seen before. And it was the first time I came to articulate what I now call my affirmation addiction. Now I look back and I realize that that kept me from being an effective pastor on many fronts. I would work hard without even thinking about it to make sure that every time I was with somebody, not only did we accomplish whatever it was that our best of intentions had in mind, but subconsciously I needed to make sure you really liked me when I was done. (laughs) In fact, you liked me more. It worked in terms of my ability to lead because now I look back and realize my fear of what people thought of me kept me from saying the hard truth that pastors need to say at times and be willing to put themselves and their relationships with people at risk because somebody has to have the courage to say it. I I didn't say those things back then. It affected me. And by God's grace and these wonderful people who spoke truth and love to me, I felt for the first time a safe place to hold that mirror up to me, to stop blaming other people and their pettiness and their misunderstanding, and understand that while that may all be out there, there's also crap in here, and it's showing up. And God began to free me from it, just first of all by virtue of my willingness to name it. Just my willingness to name it and admit it, to open up, to let light come into that darkness, and to be willing to own it. Months later, a woman in my church, you know, tended to always have an opinion, and a lot of opinions about me jumped to a lot of conclusions without the right information. I felt like I was constantly hearing things that I wanted to just pull her aside and say, would you please ask a question before you make a pronouncement? Because you're wrong. You know, it was just like one of those kind of relationships. And um, so she was a great tool for me to become self-aware. Let's just say that. (laughs) But I remember she came up to me and said to me one Sunday, she said, you've changed. And my first thought was, oh, here we go again. She says, no, 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 no. I mean, you've changed. Now, here's the thing. I didn't observe any change in myself. When I first became aware of this um, affirmation addiction piece in me and really became convicted about it and really saw how it permeated everything about me and formed everything I did and thought and how I reacted to everything, when I first saw that, I said to a friend, I don't know how I'm going to preach on Sunday. (laughs) 
I don't know how I'm going to interact with my congregation because I, don't, I now see this showing up everywhere. I don't, know, I don't know what it's going to look like going forward. And I remember one of my friends said, well, that's what we're going to find out, aren't we? So I just went about doing what I do. And I, by all means, am not a finished product. Please understand, I'm sharing this story to help you understand um, not that I'm a finished work, but that I'm grateful that God has brought me to a point of a willingness to look deep. And not that I do it every day. I don't. Because like everybody, the first thing my brain says is hide, blame. It's still a work in progress, but such liberty once you discover it. And um, she said, you've changed. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? She says, I don't know, I don't know. You feel safer. I've never heard that before. She said, you talk different. She said, you even stand different. Now, I actually don't think I did stand different. (laughs) I certainly didn't get any better at talking. But I think what she was experiencing was um, a me that God was transforming from the inside out. The filters were changing, getting cleaned up, and the, the secret intentions were losing their power over me. And each time in this five-year journey as a church, the next step has come up, and we face some circumstance, and the old me says, run, hide, <laughs> blame. I have to be willing to say sometimes the hard thing and risk being misunderstood or judged. To have some people leave angry because they're unwilling to engage with that process. There's so many things that you become brave about when you get past the idea of sin and the shame. Look at this verse from Jeremiah, which is where you may be feeling right now. Let's say this together. The heart is hopelessly dark and deceitful, a puzzle that no one can figure out. And that's that's quite frankly how it feels, isn't it? Now, most of us don't get there until our life gets so messed up that we seek professional counseling. (laughs) And that's not how it's meant to be. We're meant to be renewed in this area, in our way of thinking, in our heart, the same way we disciple in every other area. We need to learn not to just get to this when everything's falling apart. God has a better plan for us. But from our experience, it feels hopeless, doesn't it? Just like that. But then Jeremiah goes on and says this. Let's say this together. But I, God, search the heart and examine the mind. I get to the heart of the human. I get to the root of things. I treat them as they really are, not as they pretend to be. See, here's the thing. While we're all doing our pretending, God's already at the root of your heart. He's there waiting. He's willing to bring it out. And the first step towards feeling safe to go there is the first step in all of our spiritual journey. It's the gospel. The first step 
in this transformation is to begin to look at the gospel not just as the means by which we become a Christian, but the context in which we live. To so embody the gospel that it cures and transforms your default response. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself in Christ. Now, here's the thing. The gospel has the answer for every part of our default response to things. I mean, think of this. We had a loss of innocence. It created a sense of shame and guilt that we well deserved. But yet, we become a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. We become innocent. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we can become the very righteousness of God. The guilt that we still feel is a lie from Satan because God does not work in the level of guilt. He works in the level of loving conviction. Guilt is the voice of Satan. Conviction is the voice of the Holy Spirit. Guilt comes out of hatred. Conviction comes out of love. Guilt has as its goal to keep you broken and ultimately to destroy you. Conviction has as its goal to lovingly form you into the fullness of Christ. That guilt that we still hold, Christ says, I don't see that anymore. I look at you, I see innocence. We don't need to hide anymore. In fact, Hebrews says we can come boldly into the Holy of Holies because we've been sprinkled clean. We don't need to hide from God. There isn't a thing about us he doesn't know. Even the stuff you're not willing to let yourself know, God knows, and he doesn't love you any less. And I had to learn there's no great stage I could stand on No great ministry I could accomplish that would make him love me even more. I'm just loved. I belong. I don't need to hide. And because I don't need to hide from Abba Daddy, I don't need to hide from you either. And then that hiding being gone, I don't need to keep blaming everybody else for my circumstances. I can own up. I can own up because grace allows me to admit I'm still a broken person, but I am a work in progress. You see, the first step in this transformation is to take the gospel and to live in it, to place it down into the deepest part of your heart so it literally transforms those areas and frees you from them. Is God speaking to you today? Have you discovered something new or maybe been willing to look at something you suspected is true in yourself? Do you see that all of us can be so much more than we tolerate in our lives and that we bless in each other? We'll continue this next week. So much more to say. We'll talk about how to begin to break free from that. So let's pray together.
Why don't you just sit before God and, and let this idea of your filters, your perception, and your hidden intentions, just let them resonate. And Maybe the place to start today is a willingness to let God hold your life situations up to you as a mirror so you can begin to see how that brokenness is impacting you on every level and just begin that journey of discovery because of God's grace. Maybe, maybe that's the starting point. As the psalmist said, Lord, search me, try me, know my heart. Reveal if there's any hidden or secret way in me and lead me in the path everlasting. Amen.